loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Helena de Abella. Helena immigrated to the United States as a child. To make ends meet during those difficult first years, she helped her mother clean houses on the weekends. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa from George Washington University and worked to become a lawyer and lobbyist in Washington, D.C. After her day job left her feeling disconnected and unfulfilled, she deferred her student loans, applied for a credit card, and gave herself one year, one year to just listen. Five years in, she now does Craigslist Confessional full-time, and you can find out more about that at craigslistconfessional.com, and you'll know a lot more by the time this hour is over. Welcome, Helena. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm very excited to have you. Such a an interesting project that you've... That you, um, I guess sort of, I could say, grieved your way into, you know, when life as, as it had, it had unfolded was not working. (laughs) So um, that's a kind of loss too, isn't it? To have, to have put a great deal of time and energy into creating a certain life and then to realize that it doesn't feed you. Absolutely. It was a a very slow and painful revelation. And um, it was, myriad little signs that I was gathering along the way to let me know, oh, this isn't the road I want to be walking down. This isn't the path I I thought I had chosen. But um, uh, when the evidence became incontrovertible, and I'll talk about how that happened, you know, you just kind of look around and say, gosh, this isn't where I thought I'd be. And Mm. uh, you could act two ways. You could either come to terms with that and do what you need to do to write it, or you could ignore and, um, you know, stick your head in the sand, hope it gets better and hold on tight. And I'm not, I'm not the latter type of person. So I, <laughs> I did something, I did something very, an abrupt departure from the life that was making me unhappy into this Craigslist confessional territory. And I thought I'd about lost my mind when I, when I, did it, you know, and, and quit my job to do it. And, and then uh, I felt like that for a very long time. And, and slowly, the doubt was erased. And, and here we are almost six years later. But yeah, it's definitely coming to terms with with realizing your life isn't what you thought it would be is, is very, very painful. And you do grieve it. Yeah. And, and I guess, um, one thing that stood out from your story, and I'll ask you to just kind of share that in a minute is that I've worked with uh, people who either immigrated as children or their parents immigrated, um, you know, and they're the first generation really growing up, quote unquote, American. And Mm -hmm. regardless of where that family came from, uh, some of the themes that you're talking about are extremely familiar to me, the creative tension between 
your family came to make a better life in whatever way, usually for you as the child. And um, the, the tension between then actually making a better life or doing what will please them to kind of redeem their sacrifice. Yeah. And um, I think that's a, a really hard tension to resolve between um, you know, they didn't come to make you an unhappy person. On the on the other hand, they had an idea about what success in the U.S. would look like. Mean, exactly. Yeah. Um, so and can that you talk exactly some about that for you? Because it really stood out in kind of informing myself about how you came to do this, that, that tension in your life. So I, I actually came here to the States when I was 11 years old and I came with my mom and uh, there's a lot of, I feel like there's a cross section of, of different themes inside of grief that, that, you know, definitely apply in a situation like this. Um, and I think the first time that, that I experienced it was um, when I came here and realized how different life, how different my life would be and how did it become for my parents as well. Um, so both of my parents are, are highly educated. Um, my dad was a career politician in Albania, which is where I was born. Um, and he was the ambassador of Albania to Slovenia um, for about four years. So I was born in Albania, but lived in Slovenia for the latter uh, four years of my first 10 years of life. Um, and, you know, we enjoyed a very comfortable and, and good life there. My mom is a family medicine doctor and uh, very hardworking, very successful in her own right. And both had, you know, very sturdy careers before uh, we decided to come to the States. And then once we were here, we applied for political asylum, which, which we received. But um, the standard of living, you know, in Albania, you could be living very well. And that translates to living below poverty line in, in the States. So my parents income, what little they had saved just wasn't enough for us to, you know, have a, a decent, okay life here. And so uh, we needed money. The long and short of it was that we needed to find a way to make money so that we could survive. Um, survived the sacrifice of having moved here in the first place. And so my mom started cleaning houses and I joined her when, whenever I could, mostly on the weekends. And my dad started working as a security guard at Barton um, and he worked at the Home Depot. So he would stand uh, on the door of the Home Depot at the door and, and check people's receipts to make sure that they hadn't taken anything uh, without paying for it. So these... I think were huge blows to their, to how they perceived themselves and to the careers that they'd built back home, quote unquote. Um, and initially, you know, they weren't sure that it was worth it. And so they put a lot of eggs on the basket of this will be for Helena's future. This will be mm. so that Helena can go to a very good school and so that she could, you know, graduate and, and get a good career and do what she wants to do with her life. And, uh, you know, that's what I did. I wanted to make my parents happy. I wanted to justify those giant um, sacrifices that they'd made in their own lives and their own careers. You know, my mom was never able to um, practice medicine again. My dad 
obviously forfeited his career in, in politics and in, in the Foreign Service. So it was gargantuan for them, the sacrifice. And for me, it meant, okay, they've done this for me. I, I need to give them what they want. And what they wanted was, you know, um, book smart daughter who put everything into uh, getting a good education and taking care of herself and being independent. And uh, so I went to undergrad. And as you read, I graduated Phi Beta Kappa, top of my class. And my parents said, you can do it. If anybody can do law school, you can do it. And uh, I took my LSATs, did very well, and got into a top tier law school, um, which they were very proud of. And I went to my first class of law school and immediately knew this was not for me. And yet, um, and yet you became an attorney and a lobbyist. I mean, you did it up we might yeah, say. I did. I <laughs> stuck with it. I stuck with it. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to quit because the word was so dirty then, quitting. What does that mean? You can't hack it. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Why, why are you quitting? And, and you're I so did. disappointing. And disappointing to myself, but also mostly to my parents because they wouldn't have understood this, this internal monologue that I was constantly having of, wow, so, okay, so three three years of, of law school, but then a lifetime of practicing law. And if I can somehow squirrel my way out of that, then at least some extension of the legal practice, you know, so lobbying or advocacy or something of that sort. And so I graduated and I, you know, I, 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 I passed, which was the goal, right. To, to just get out of that situation. And, um, and then I worked on Capitol Hill uh, doing policy work for about a year, which I actually really, really liked. Um, but I found it to be, I mean, A, not enough money um, to pay off student loans and live comfortably. But not only that, I, I also found just politics in general a little bit um, too cyclical for my own liking, too stagnant for my own liking. And so I got out of that and took the revolving door and became a lobbyist. So I got my first lobbying job, I think. 25, um, wow. if that. And yeah, and, and I was the, I think the youngest lobbyist that they had hired for that firm. And um, I was making okay money, nothing impressive, nothing, you know, to take the edge off of doing work that you don't like, certainly. Um, but I stuck with it. Again, here's that theme of sticking with something, even though you know, it's not right for you, because it's scary to make a departure from from this whole track, this whole life that you've pre-planned for yourself. And um, and then one day I, I had a chance conversation with somebody and his name was Joe. He was a homeless man and he panhandled in front of my office building. Um, and he was there, rain or shine, always there. And I remember one of my earliest memories of showing up to work there was that I was checking in with the security guards and showing them my ID so that I could get a key fob for the building. And I remember one of them just ducking away and going to yell at Joe for panhandling in front of the building because apparently he'd been told to not stand there. Mm -hmm. um, and it just left such an impression. It, it really hurt me to see him treated this way. And so I kind of created this casual relationship with him where if I was going to the hill and I was getting lunch, I'd just get him lunch or I'd run around the corner to a CVS or to a sandwich shop and kind of get some food for him. Um, and I had done that for a while. And then uh, this particular day where 
everything ended up changing for me. I didn't, I had, didn't have any food for him. And, um, and he called after me and he, he asked me, and I remember this so clearly because it was like a dagger to my heart. He asked me if I was upset with him, if that was the reason that I hadn't brought him any food. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize how much he was relying on me and how unfair this dynamic was, how unfair the situation was and how, it isn't just Joe. There were so many homeless people in that same street um, that I passed, you know, several times a day. And, and I wish I could have done everything for all of them. Uh, but Joe was my one person that I had any sort of connection with. So I stopped and I talked to him that day. And we had a conversation that I think was um, the, the seed that planted this whole idea of what became Craigslist confessional. And it was basically a conversation about life, his life uh, and my life and how he ended up homeless. And, um, and I told him a lot about my own road to, you know, being lobbying and, and all that and how unhappy I was with it. And I realized, you know, um, there was no inequality in our conversation. It didn't feel inappropriate that I was, you know, complaining to him about my uh, grand old life while he was homeless and counting on me for food. It, it felt like I was accepted and, and I, I certainly accepted him and what he was sharing. And um, I don't know, it was one of the most honest conversations I've ever had with a human being or ha was at that point. Um, I'm and, sure that you've had many more. I mean, I know you have yes, from reading the book <laughs> since then, yeah. but, um, but that since, was one yeah. where you shared primarily. Yes, I think that was what was different about this particular conversation is that usually when I'm meeting with other people, I listen to them and I say nothing about myself or my own life. And in this particular, because it was the first one and I didn't know, you know, obviously what was to come. I just, I, I, I needed it. You know, some days you have these days where you're just a dark cloud filled with rain and you're just waiting for the slightest thing to just like let go and, and, and unburden. And I was that dark cloud just, and I was ready almost in tears, just one little slight provocation. I would have just let it go. And it just so happened that that question that he asked me was, was that provocation. I it, all the emotions that were right there at the very surface just came out because I thought how unfair, how unfair that he is in this position, how unfair that, that we live in a society where I could work one block away from the white house, one block away. I could see the white house from where Joe was standing. And yet, there could be people who are so poor that they live on the street and they count on strangers for their next meal. Mm. Um, and so that's where that conversation came from, from that sense of, oh, how unfair. And um, I wish I could do something more than just placate him and placate myself mostly by food and then away to my grand old life, you know? And so I talked to him about things that I'd wondered for a while about how he had ended up there and shared a lot of my own issues I was dealing with at the time. And, and then we, um, I walked away and went back to my office and closed the door and just kind of thought about what I'd talked about and wondered, this is very weird because it's not like, you know, he and I shared very much or we're kindred spirits in any way. It's just that 
I don't know, what was it? Why? Why Joe that I felt so keen to tell everything to and why not anyone else? Um, so I, I thought about that for a while and realized it's probably because there's really nothing to lose for either of us because we are strangers. Um, and that's where the idea of posting that ad on Craigslist, offering to listen anonymously and for free to strangers tell me stories that they would never tell anybody else. That was the conversation that led to that idea. You know, we just have a few minutes before the break, and I, I would love to hear uh, a little bit from the book. I'd love the listeners to hear a little bit from the book so that you ha- you uh, we can give them a sense how these stories that you ended up collecting, um, the depth of them. Yes. Maybe you can share us uh, one, one piece before... Uh, before we take a break. I'd love to. So I'm going to share a story from Henry. Henry was in his 70s. um, And he says, in recovery, they tell you that alcoholism is chronic, progressive, and fatal. But it wasn't until she died that this lesson really resonated. Up until the very end, I thought I could cure her. I thought I could save her. I tried to make her happy at all costs, thinking that if I gave her everything she'd ever wanted, she wouldn't need to drink anymore. I saw her need to drink as my personal failure as a husband. We paid for world-class rehab facilities, but every trip ended the same way, with an eventual relapse. Maybe she made it a few days, maybe a few months, but she always relapsed, and it only got worse. It started to consume everything. So this is Henry talking about his wife, and when I met him, Uh, It had been a few months uh, that she had passed away. So he was still dealing with the grief of her passing. And and his story was very raw and very emotional, obviously. And these were a few lines from it. And and tender. Uh, There's something about, and we can come back and talk about this more. Uh, It happens to me with... um, so much frequency that my my family teases me about it that I'll be out somewhere and and suddenly uh, somebody's telling me their life story. Yeah, <laughs> out of the blue, you know, at, it's happened at at uh, gas stations, <laughs> in cafes, you know, and I I don't know. I think people can feel when you're a listening type of person, maybe. Yeah. But what I notice is that telling a stranger is sometimes safer because um, you can just walk away and not have much invested if they don't listen well. Um, and there's something so relieving, especially in an area of shame. And that's, um, that's what I was, you know, really noticing with, with Henry. He could have so much shame, but in telling us a, a total stranger, it could just be his story. It just be his reality. Let's talk about that more when we come back. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media, the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Helena Deabala, go to craigslistconfessional.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring Better Help. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Helena Deabala about her project, Craigslist confessional and Helena before the break we were we were just talking about the the odd safety that comes in telling your the deepest parts of your story which are usually the the challenging parts or the grievous parts to a total stranger and how how free that can feel how how liberating that can feel because you don't have to really worry about their feelings too much um you just tell your story it reminds me of a a teacher of mine who wrote a book called every person's life is worth a novel um you know it's that same idea of there are deep things going on in us that that uh aren't visible or aren't obvious but they're they're where we're living really living most of the time I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I always, when I, when I talk about Craigslist confessional with people and I share about listening and, and the, the, the rhythm of these conversations, it's very, you know, obviously the person is sharing their story and I might ask a question here and there interject to get a detail correct. But mostly I would say it's 98% them, 2% me. And it's, I just listen. And every time I share about, you know, what I do, people say what you've just said, which is, yeah, that happens to me a lot. Uh, You know, I'll just be sitting on a train and all of a sudden the person sitting next to me will tell me their whole life story. You'd be surprised. I've heard that just in the last month alone that I've been, you know, talking uh-huh. to people and doing interviews, I've heard it um, 
three or four times. And I wonder how much of it is, you know, us having a label on our foreheads that said, hey, I'm a good listener, or I'm accepting, or I have a lot of empathy for stranger stories. And how much of it is that I think everybody just needs to unload. And we have, we're all awake to this truth that sometimes it's easier to unburden with a stranger, however receptive or non-receptive they may be than it is with someone, anyone in our own lives. Mm -hmm. There's just not so much on the line when it is with a total stranger. And so I wonder if we're just going around looking for somebody, anybody that looks good is like, there, <laughs> that I've got them. Uh, we're sitting in a train. I've got them for the next right. two hours. I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm going to get this off my chest. Yeah. Because I there is she likes it or not, right. she's going to listen. Yeah, I, I often think that that's the biggest part of my job as a therapist, for instance, is just hearing someone's story the way that they want to tell it. Exactly. The, exactly. the, the absolute truth from their own point of view. And also, I, I was thinking I was, as I was reading, you know, your parents were these full, um, rich people. Uh, with with big and I don't mean that economically but right. maybe that too but you know they had uh, very full lives then they came here and you know when someone came across your dad uh, by in the Home Depot or they hired your mom to clean their house they probably weren't even curious about all the rest of what your family was and it's very, it's invisible. Yeah, it's invisible. invisible. How would you know? Yeah. Uh, I do think a lot about how invisible many lives are. You know, when I, I did the calculation once and realized that about 50% of people you pass on the street are grieving a loss. Yeah. And, and, you know, we don't have labels on us that make the world kind of understand that we're, that, that we have struggles. Uh, and so all of these stories that you tell feel enriching for me to read because it's, uh, it's people's chance to say what has most impacted them. And often painful, of course, but we don't hesitate as much to say, oh, I'm so happy with my new baby or, you know, those stories get told a little bit more, but not completely either. I love that you just said we don't have labels. I'm going to read you a very quick passage from Maddie, who's um, a young 20-something, I believe I spoke to, yeah, in her early 30s when I spoke to her, um, who shared about growing up uh, very poor in America. And she says, I wish there was a label you could wear that told people everything they needed to know about you. I feel like it would make people so much kinder to one another to know of people's troubles and burdens and be more considerate of them. Mine would say, Maddie, good person, hard worker, grew up poor, trying her best. So yes, that she, label, stood, she stood out to me. I made yeah. a note about her because uh, I, I am very aware. I don't know if all therapists are. I think not. But I'm very aware. Let's say I'm working with a couple and they have different class backgrounds. They have a totally different view of the world in some ways. 
Yeah. And um, if you don't get interested in what those differences are, we kind of throw people into broad categories that aren't very accurate. And so Absolutely. you've been you've been um, gifted or blessed with hearing the real story on people um, very often. But I wonder, is that are you ever left with kind of uh, I don't know, the word that comes to my mind is leftovers or on the one hand, incredible to be the one that that gets to hear the story. Right. I feel very privileged that way. But I wonder if sometimes you sort of end up carrying people around in a way that is difficult. Yeah, you absolutely do. And, and I, you know, I don't have the benefit of having that um, educational background slash organizational knowledge of knowing how to cope with hearing difficult stories. Whereas, for instance, I'm sure you and your training has provided you with that. So for me, it's very very raw and, and it feels very immediate and it feels very um, important uh, and not something that I know how to necessarily cope with. And at least not in the very beginning when I started listening, um, I didn't know what to do with the pain. And I obviously, I wish the best and, and almost like hard-headedly want the best for everyone I spoke I do you know it's just yes. like no it's gonna work god damn it you know it's you're gonna be okay please and, give me my happy ending here right yes yes, yes yes and I think that's exactly why this book is so difficult for so many people is because there are no happy endings not in the traditional sense not to say it's all gloom and doom and nothing good happens to people but it's very raw and very real and true to life and sometimes you don't want true to life sometimes you want you know that departure that fairy tale that light fluffy beach read and not something that mirrors what you're dealing with every day and i think that you know when you're already with dealing with life as you know it the ups the downs the difficulties the doubts and then you hear a story that maybe on a particular day gets you very vulnerable it's very hard to um you know twist and turn that into a perfect pink bow ribbon and say great everything worked out because it often doesn't, and you carry that with you a lot. I, I was imagining, though, that that eventually, because you've listened to so many people now, and you do continue to do it, and so I was imagining that at some point you say, telling our stories in and of itself is redeeming. Being heard in and of itself is an improvement. Uh, because I have to imagine you it, you wouldn't be able to keep doing it if you didn't feel you were offering some service, you know, Absolutely. Uh, the, yeah. to the people that you're listening to. Absolutely. In that sense, obviously, there's a reason behind listening. And I, I realize that not everybody has access to somebody to speak to, to somebody to listen to them. Um, and, and being able to be that person when somebody feels particularly down or vulnerable is a privilege for me. 
not only because, yes, I'm doing something for somebody else, but because every single story I've heard, no matter how different from my own path and my own experience in life, no matter how different that person could be on paper, um, you know, I'm a 30-something-year-old woman living in New York City. This person is an 80-something-year-old man living in, you know, X, Y, Z there's still so much there that I can identify with. And if there isn't, then after that conversation, I spend time thinking about what resonated with me and what part of my mind and heart was opened by this fact that this person has shared this with me. So it's, it's enriching for me. And I, I think for, for the person who's sharing their story, it's an exercise in, like you just said, telling their story, their own story, their narrative in their own terms, how they perceive it without feeling that they're being judged or without feeling that they have to make it pretty or that they're showing some sort of progress or anything, right? Just raw, how it comes to them in the moment, unfettered. Um, So it is redeeming in that sense, but it doesn't really take the edge off of feeling that there's very much um, that is uh, difficult to hear regardless of, of, the end result of feeling that overall the arc of it is positive. There, there are so many stories in the book where there was a, pre, um, a, an active uh, push for people not to share, you know, yeah. shame-based families, for instance. And I'd love to have you share about Jane. It's one such situation as that. Um, breaking through that barrier can be really hard. And so I wonder if in a way um, you open a door that then the person can walk through more ho- more often. Uh, because, for instance, when someone comes to therapy, it's often quite a while before they can share what, they're sh- what they feel shame about uh, or what someone told them they shouldn't tell, someone told them was a secret. And I wonder if there isn't a way that you ease that a bit for the person because they've now told someone. Right. I think that's the first and most important step is that somebody outside of your family knows, acknowledges, and sees something, a truth that has been very personal to you for a long time. Let me read a little bit from Jane and, and give you an idea. So this is Jane who is in her 30s. My husband and I have been together for almost a decade and we have one son. We met through mutual friends. He is successful, charming, and very well-liked in our circle. I would say that his guy friends almost look up to him, so much so that I'm often told that I'm lucky to have found him. From the look of things, he has the perfect life and the perfect family. The thing that nobody knows about our perfect family is that my husband is a monster. He's extremely verbally abusive toward me and, on occasion, our son. He has never been physically abusive, which I think is why I've put up with it. So there's Jane in her own words sharing about um, what it's been to live with and and be a partner to her husband who, um, then she talks about this in depth throughout our conversation, but who is um, just routinely gaslights her and, um, you know, questions her perception of reality, doesn't listen to her, you know, can flip a switch and become a totally different person depending on the circumstance and the groups of people that he's um, surrounded by. And, and Jane is just carrying this burden of being the only person to see 
see him for who he is and the type of person that he really is. And nobody knows, not her family, not their friends. Nobody has seen him like this. And he goes out of his way to make her feel that she's the one that's at fault here. Yeah, and I, I remember that particular sharing and, you know, how she absolutely knew that he was abusive. And yet I believe she talked about questioning herself. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just really such an important part of being in that situation that no matter how much you know that what's happening is not right, it still causes you, it still undermines you in a way that makes it hard to deal with or hard to walk out of. I mean, but, because her husband was so vehemently, that, no, no, you're wrong. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. And when somebody can lie to you without feeling any compunction about it, which he routinely did, it made her question her own reality so much so that she actually decided to record him one time, what he was saying, just so that she could have confirmation to herself. No, no this is permanent. Yes, he said this to me. And, and then when this next bout or wave of fighting came about, she said, no, that is what you said. And he said, no, I didn't. And she said, yes, you did. I've recorded you. And then he promptly, without missing a beat, turned that against her. Oh, that's illegal. You can't record me. This is not right. So the, the manipulation, the level of manipulation is is so much so that she's questioning the conversation to, exactly. to the fact that she recorded him, not the fact of what he said. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it's just, it, I think being able to voice that gave her, I hope, a little bit of power. Um, and having an audience that believed her, I think, made a difference. I hope made a difference. Well, I, I have to think so, that at least her reality was affirmed in that moment sitting with you. Right. And, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about people in very dire family situations at this time, um, COVID time. Uh, I mean, COVID is hard on people who have healthy marriages and relationships if you're Absolutely. sheltering in place and wearing masks all the time and not seeing your friends. But the idea of being in a situation such as hers, um, it's pretty heartbreaking. And um, I, I do think it matters that somebody knows what you're going through. I kind of send out, uh, I, I, I don't um, need it to actually work, but I sort of friend, send out good energy yeah. <laughs> to, to everybody who's, who's struggling in this time because it amplifies things so much. It also amplifies, you know, the people that come through for us, but. <laughs> Absolutely. Time for our second break and then we'll come back and talk some more. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Helena Deabala, go to craigslistconfessional.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Helena Deabala, whose project and also book, Craigslist Confessional, we've been talking about. And um, Helena, I know you're still, because I've, I've looked on your website, I know that you're still listening. And uh, I, I would think that with the book coming out, and I know you ran a, an, a, a column for a long time, I would think that you have a lot of people reaching out to you. Are you the only one who does the listening? I am. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want this to, I, I have a lot of people who reach out because they want to ask how to become listeners, um, how to do what I do, which I think is admirable and lovely. But there's no special ingredients or special sauce to being a listener. You just kind of sit down and do it. Um, so that's what I always say when people ask how do I do it I'm a one woman operation and um, it's something that I started doing you know without the intent of writing these stories down without the intent of having a book come out one day um, this eventually you know through having done it for several months became something that I I saw as an opportunity as a possibility and started asking for permission from my subjects to write about their stories and share them publicly. But when I started doing this, I was just a random lobbyist in Washington, D.C. who'd posted an ad on Craigslist um, offering to listen. So I still keep it very bare bones. I've learned a lot and a lot has changed in the last six years for me. I've become a mom, which has changed a lot um, just in terms of being able to schedule things alone. Uh, but I, you know, I still, I still listen and it's just, it's just me. And I hope it'll probably stay like that for, for as long as I, as long as I can do it, I will continue. Um, it's, you know, you don't do something like this and then turn around and say, okay, never again. You know, it's, just, it's, stays here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in your bones now, I guess. It is. But, but I want to um, 
disagree with you a little bit because just listening is a skill that an incredible number of people do not have. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, you know, there's, I think we live in a culture that thinks you have to be doing something or fixing something. Yeah. And so uh, there's a great uh, page of a book I refer to all the time. Uh, it's from a book called um, uh, There's No Good Card for That. And the page is labeled, what kind of non-listener are you? <laughs> you know? And it's all these ways that people don't listen. They give advice. They um, catastrophize. They are overly optimistic. You know, whatever it is, all adding to a person's story and not just listening. And so I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily think that the law prepared you for just listening um uh, no it's the opposite actually <laughs> the law prepared you for how are you going to react <laughs> yeah yeah because uh i wouldn't have thought so either um and you know i know when i've worked with attorneys i when an attorney comes to me for therapy i often kind of offer a disclaimer that every attorney I've ever worked with has ended up leaving the law <laughs> you know, because it's hard to maintain a kind of human to human real connection because it's all about strategy. Cheryl, um, I think that might mean that you're very good at your job. <laughs> I, think, well, I think I don't know what it means, but it happens repeatedly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, I, I certainly, I don't think that, you know, my legal training prepared me for this. I think if anything, I, I also went into it thinking, well, what can little old me give? I have no changing advice. I'm a 25 year old, you know, with a cup of coffee. So what, what can I possibly weigh in with here that will be life changing or, or impressive to these people who oftentimes are, have lived much more life than I have, you know, and, and probably are in many ways smarter. Um, and I just, I felt like I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. So really all I could do well at that point was to listen. And then it became very clear that that was exactly what was needed of me. Almost immediately became clear that I didn't need to have these, you know, earth shattering revelations. And a lot of people who were coming to me weren't coming because they wanted somebody to tell them what to do, or they wanted to a situation to get better. They just needed to unload and kind of fetch, you know, just get it off their chest and, and maybe see it in a different light at the very end or feel unburdened or a little bit lighter or whatever it might have mm -hmm. been. But I was happy to be that person to be there listening to them and giving them that space that that they weren't getting anywhere else. And who am I to, you know, judge how or why you've come to me, I'm fine with whatever brings you in as long as I can ask some very good questions of you some some lawyerly questions, I would say, um, you know, and, and maybe sometimes they're a little bit leading, you know, maybe I'm trying to get to something that you're seem to be avoiding. But there's absolutely nothing that I say that's meant to be, you know, a nudge in a certain direction or another. And I disclose, you know, I don't have a, a training in mental health. I, I'm just a friend who's willing to listen and honestly and for free to as long as you need it. And some of my meetings are, you know, 
my longest one was eight hours. So mm. a lot of this, you know, it's just long stretches of sitting across from somebody and, and talking to them and listening to them about what's going on in their lives. And at first, you didn't take any particular safety precautions, which, which, uh, in fact, the only safety precaution I picked up from, you know, my background work was your husband being nervous and him, yeah. <laughs> you know, sitting in cafes and, and watching. And so I have to conclude, listening to a stranger is pretty safe, as long as you're not in your home. And, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, um, for you, it has been. And I think that's really notable. Even when uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit of George's story, even when someone is unbalanced in some way, uh, I don't get the idea that you experienced your, your listening as dangerous to you. No, I, I, I've never felt uncomfortable or, or in a position where I felt unsafe. And I've been very lucky in that sense because, uh, you know, when I started meeting people off of Craigslist, Craigslist can be a little bit seedy. It doesn't have the best reputation. Um, there was a movie, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called The Craigslist Killer. It was on Lifetime for mm. the long time. And it was I have heard guy, of it. Yeah, who found his victims through Craigslist. So this was the reputation that it, that it kind of stuck with for a while there. But I, in DC, you know, it's also a, a great community of people. And, and I felt safer because it is a small, big city, so to speak. Um, and I was, you know, meeting people at usually a Starbucks, very public place during the day. So I was doing due diligence, you know, to make sure I wasn't you know, being careless, but uh, Alex, my now husband, did follow me to a couple of the meetings just in the very beginning to make sure that this everything was kind of okay. He, he had to feel safe too. <laughs> he did. He did. And speaking of non-listeners, uh, shout out to my husband, who is the ultimate non-listener. He is the fixer. So whenever I'm dealing with something, he just comes comes right in and says, well, have you thought of doing this? Well, I would just do this. Well, yes, Alex, I have thought of it. And yes, I know, but I just kind of want to talk. I want to talk it through. Are you willing to, and you know, he's just, bless him. He's great. And he comes from absolutely the right place of wanting to help. But sometimes just listening is help. Um, and, you know, he's not that brand of listening uh, yet. Right. I'm working right. on them. Well, you know, I I often tell people to cue their other, their significant other, uh, like tell them what you want at the beginning, because I'll bet when you want to strategize solutions, he's your guy. Yeah. He but really, if you just he, want to vent, <laughs> maybe not. My also. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, we're we're both very similar in the sense that it's just, I, I know that he was coming from a place of wanting me to be safe, but he was just like, well, have you thought about this and this and this and this and this? And it's just, Al, you know, if I think of everything before I even get started, I won't, I won't get anywhere. I won't even start because it's overwhelming the doubts and thoughts and insecurities that you have when you give them a little bit of light. So anyhow, uh, I knew, I knew that he, he wanted to come and, and be in on these meetings and it was okay. He, you know, obviously kept a distance, so he wasn't, encroaching or overhearing, but um, it made him feel better. And um, I'll read a little bit of George just to kind of give you a sense of, of, of somebody who was um, 
going through a lot when I, I met him. George had been diagnosed with um, depression and bipolar disorder and uh, was having a lot of trouble with his relationships um, with his kids, especially. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of the stories that stays with me most from the ones that I've heard, um, because I think a lot of us have kind of felt like this at one time or another. So let me just read a, a few lines from George. I haven't seen my daughter in over 10 years. I call her on the phone about once a year. I used to call more, but she told me to stop. So now we try to email about once a month. She's limited me to once a month. And I could only send her funny things that I find on the internet. I haven't seen my son or spoken to him in over two years. Last time we spoke, he told me that he doesn't have room in his life for negative people and negative relationships. Listen, I understand. I wouldn't want to have me as a dad either. My kids have their own lives, their own worries. I'm sure they'd rather not have to worry about me too. And on the phone, I'm bound to say something that makes them add me to their mental to-do list. So they keep me at arm's distance. I'm a bit of a downer. But I like myself and how I do things, I guess. Life is easier now that I've accepted my disease. I can't beat it, so I've adapted to it. The way I look at it, I have few regrets. I fulfilled my responsibilities as a husband and father. I went on a few adventures. Hey, I lived a full life. Now I wait. Mm -hmm. So here's George talking about, um, you know, being out of touch with his, with his family, the people that he cares about most and feeling isolated and alone to deal with his mental illness. And um, he talks about how much of his life he's had to forfeit or give up because um, either it wasn't fully diagnosed or, or diagnosed on time or, you know, prescriptions he was taking needed time to be calibrated. So it took a very long time for him to get to a place where he felt okay. And most days he still doesn't feel okay. Um, and so I, I felt I identified a lot with what George um, shared, especially now with COVID. I think people who struggle with anxiety, especially are having a hard time of it. So for sure. And also, uh, I just happened to have watched last night a, a documentary about uh, Robin Williams, The End of His Life. Oh, yeah. And uh, what stood out was um, one of the doctors who um, they had to speak about the illness he had, talking about the extreme difference in our perceptions of, of illnesses that affect the brain versus illnesses that affect the rest of the body. Right. And that this this experience George had of being um, re rejected for his illness, basically. Right. Um, and that people don't have that understanding that, that he came to understand that he's got an illness. And so that made you a perfect listener because you were just hearing his experience, but his family was rejecting him as if he could decide not to have that illness. And I think uh, that stands out. Some of the most painful stories in your book to me were not the ones about someone dying. They were other losses, loss of family because something went wrong, loss of safety, loss of identity, um, a failure to have your identity um, supported, as in, you know, the trans and gay people you, you talked with. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that 
is true often that uh, it's kind of these less one might think less dramatic things that that stick to people for their whole lives. I absolutely agree. I think it's just one of those things where, you know, you think that something very acute like death might be the most shocking, the most painful, but sometimes the more... yes, sometimes no. Yeah. Huh? Yes. We're going yes. to have to fold it up for today, Helena, but I've really enjoyed our talk. Thank you. For I have to. Thank you so much for having me on. I really absolutely. enjoyed it. You can find Helena Diabala at craigslistconfessional.com. Next week, I'll have Tim Selig to talk about his memoir, Tale of Two Tims, Big Old Baptist, Big Old Gay. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.